ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters in Christ, welcome back to the Christus Rex blogcast, where today we're launching a new series. Now, from time to time, we'll be sharing excerpts from Theopolitan and Reconstructionist literature because it's too good to be hidden. Most have no idea what those terms mean, but stick around and you'll most certainly find out. I will always cite my sources and be sure to give more than enough credit to the appropriate authors and parties, specifically the Theopolis Institute, the Chalcedon Foundation, and Reconstructionist Radio. For now, kick back, relax, and prepare to have your heart, soul, and mind captivated the profound applicability of God's Word. Today, we'll begin with selected readings from the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, Volume 11, Number 2, Symposium on the Education of the Core Group, 1986 to 1987. Lord, please bless us as we seek to love our King Christ, obey Him, and disciple the nations in His name. Hey everyone, this is C.G. Billiot with the Christus Rex blogcast, and we're so happy to have you back here with us. This will be an interesting project going forward. Uh, typically, particularly uh, as as you guys have, have noticed, who have been with us for a little bit now, the weekly wires have been structured in such a way as to be suitable for a commute or work around the house. Uh, typically, we've shot for you know where can we land between a ten to thirty minute window. Some longer than others, but we've tried to humbly stay committed to uh, that vision. These, on the other hand, these going forward, I can promise you, will not be that short. Uh, <laughs> ideally, these will be the longer segments of what we want to put out. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it'll be more than worth your time. Uh, as the intro identified, we will be uh, addressing, consulting, and discussing uh, Theopolitan and Reconstructionist literature. Now, uh, most Christians today have no idea uh, what those terms are referring to ideologically or theologically speaking. We will address that at a later date. This is actually not going to be, it might be counterintuitive, but this will be, this will not be the first episode to intro uh, historically what those terms have meant and what they presently mean in the church in America. But I will at, at least give you uh, an a proper introduction to the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, because it is, you know, <laughs> helpfully, uh, very um, dutifully put before me in the, the cover of uh, this particular journal. Now, you can, if you yourself would like a copy of this particular journal, or any in the series, or any of a number of Reconstructionist literature, please, please consult the wonderful folks at the Chalcedon Foundation. That is www.chalcedonfoundation.edu. Uh, but for now, we're going to dive into this. And I'll say, if you've been watching uh, the posts on the Instagram page, the Christus Rex Instagram page, rex.christus underscore, uh, you've noticed that along with the Post Militia, we've had uh, a month-long campaign titled, quote, uh, To Hell with You Old Gods. And this is a quote from St. Patrick. Um, basically, we are calling for the church and various insti institutions to call anathema on a number of practices uh, that our society is fully engaged in, even Christians. Um, and for the last two weeks, the Christus Rex page has addressed public education, state education, government education. Um, it's been interesting. We've <laughs> got a lot of interesting feedback in that. And an important disclaimer is that uh, myself, my friends, uh, we have many, many close ties to wonderful Christians who are involved in the public education system. We don't want to uh, don't want any of these posts or any of these uh, sentiments to come across as direct attacks to them. Uh, but rather, these are direct attacks to the systems in and of themselves. Um, of course, God and his common grace can do wonders through such folks and even out and about pagans in such a system. But nonetheless, we're called to repentance and belief uh, in the Lord and his word and what his word calls us to. Um, and hopefully episodes like these, resources like the posts that have been put out thus far, uh, and more and more will come from the church that will persuade more and more Christians that Christian education is not a preference, um, it is a command from God. So without further ado, all those things being said, brace yourself if you, uh, like myself, grew up in the public education system and had not heard these things before, they might come across as shocking, and that's because they really are. But what is the Journal of Christian Reconstruction? 
This journal is dedicated to the fulfillment of the cultural mandate of Genesis 1, 28 and 9, verse 1, to subdue the earth to the glory of God. It is published by the Chalcedon Foundation, an independent Christian educational organization. The perspective of the journal is that of Orthodox Christianity. It affirms the verbal, plenary inspiration of the original manuscripts of the Bible and the full divinity and the full humanity of Jesus Christ, two natures in union, but without intermixture, in one person. The editors are convinced that the Christian world is in need of a serious publication that bridges the gap between the newsletter magazine and the scholarly academic journal. The editors are committed to Christian scholarship, but the journal is aimed at intelligent laymen, working pastors, and others who are interested in the reconstruction of all spheres of human existence in terms of the standards of the Old and New Testaments. It is not intended to be another outlet for professors to professors, but rather a forum for serious discussion within Christian circles. The Marxists have been absolutely correct in their claim that theory must be united with practice, and for this reason, they have been successful in their attempt to erode the foundations of the non-communist world. The editors agree with the Marxists on this point, but instead of seeing in revolution the means of fusing theory and practice, we see the fusion in personal regeneration through God's grace in Jesus Christ and in the extension of God's kingdom. Good principles should be followed by good practice, eliminate either, and the movement falters. In the long run, it is the kingdom of God, not Marx's quote, kingdom of freedom, which shall reign triumphant. Christianity will emerge victorious, for only in Christ and his revelation can men find both the principles of conduct and the means of subduing the earth, the principles of biblical law. So if that doesn't give you a nice little taste of uh, <laughs> some of the thoughts behind Reconstructionism, then I don't know what will. Uh, but nonetheless, the Christian Reconstructionist movement, I promised, I, well, I told you guys I wasn't going to do a formal intro, but here's a little snippet, uh, was a movement that came about the, the early 70s, from the 70s to the 90s, uh, and kind of faltered for a little bit, but now it's rebranding itself through popular uh, theologies in our day, like post-millennialism, Christian nationalism, theonomy. Uh, these guys were the giants of whom we are now standing on their shoulders, uh, trying to combat the culture uh, in the church uh, and outside the church today. So some of these ideas, I promise you, as I read them, you're going, well, wait a minute, we're, that's exactly what we're dealing with right now. Yeah, it's a little spooky. Uh, <laughs> you, you will see that they, uh, following in a reformed tradition uh, from saints of even further in yesteryear, from the 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries before them, uh, you'll see that they were, they were equipped by God in light of his word to forecast or foresee what were some of the things that we're going to be dealing with uh, today, uh, almost to the T. It's, it's, again, like I said, it's a little spooky. So we'll start. There were, there were two um, articles in this journal that I wanted to, one of them I wanted to cover the wave tops, and the other I actually just wanted to read the whole thing. So like I said, not going to be a 30-minute episode, probably longer. Uh, but I think it is absolutely essential. Again, if we're convicted about things that are to be obeyed from Scripture, then it's our job to uh, follow through with them in thought, word, and deed. Um, and this is uh, my conviction. I hope it becomes yours. But we'll start with, uh, let's see where it goes, The Fraud of Educational Reform, uh, written by Samuel L. Blumenfield in 1986. Blumenfield was an educational scholar, um, but unlike many in that field, of the, uh, many in that field, um, that occupation, as you'll see from his writing here in a second, um, he was a conservative Christian. So, I mean, it's like finding an ostrich in an aquarium that just sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, so in reading this, this article, it's actually one of the shorter ones in the journal, but it's, uh, goodness, what's the word I'm looking for? It's quite revealing uh, because, again, you're dealing with someone who is, who is an expert, a participant in this particular academic community and profession. And he is kind of pulling back the curtain on a number of things that were going on in the 80s that many folks my age, we had uh, utterly no idea. There's a, there's a lot of young folks right now coming to uh, the Reformed tradition or they're becoming more biblical in their thinking. And they're looking back at the foundations of public or government 
schooling and they're going, well, wait a minute, like, you know, 150 years ago, there's some really sus characters, uh, you know, suspicious characters that were behind this. But what I want to um, combat is the idea uh, that I've seen in some of the comments from the Christmas Rex page recently. Uh, well, yeah, you know, we might have had some faulty um, foundations, but those things diluted over time. And it's not as if, you know, there's these, uh, you know, mal-intended, uh, you know, secret scholars who are meeting in smoke-filled rooms to discuss, you know, this some agenda to secularize the nation. Well, um, hopefully this, <laughs> this article will reveal to you that that, that claim is not true at all. Uh, to the opposite, even in, you know, 1986, you had scholarly discussion professional discussion being published in academic journals um, that would argue to the antithesis of those claims, that they were certainly arguing for the not only the secularization, the mass secularization of society, uh, but in fact, the mass radicalization of society away from Christian values. Um, so starting this, some of the wave tops, Blumenfield quotes a number of uh, scholars from that era. So starting with this, he says this, um, at the time, by the way, in the 80s, there was a lot of realization of, well, wait a second, we've had government schooling now for almost 100 years. Um, why? Well, really more than that, but in, in, at least in the form that we know as modernists, they had it for almost 100 years. And they're looking at the numbers and they're saying, well, wait a second, um, why for almost 100 years now, why are there so many households that are still illiterate? And even today, and you can fact check me on this, according to the National Center of Education Statistics, uh, one in five Americans is... Uh, functionally illiterate. And it's even more than that. Technically, it's 21%. How is that possible? If, if, if public education is made accessible to all the people in our country, what is the excuse for that? And this is not taken into account, for example, uh, illegal immigrants or, or, or those who are coming here with English now as their first language. This is amongst uh, regularly uh, assessed communities. Uh, so anyway, you can check out those studies. But the point is, is this was this was obviously still a problem then as it is now. And uh, Blumenfield, is consul uh, he's, he's consulting or considering a number of scholars who were dealing with this issue and listen to the response of what they were going to do with the, these issues from education scholars at the time. He says, Barbara Ann Scott, associate professor of sociology at the State University of New York, wrote an article for Boston University's Journal of Education, volume 168, number one, 1986, entitled the decline of literacy and liberal learning. So she says this, quote, back to the basics is basically a demand for functional literacy and to a degree cognitive literacy with the bourgeoisie tradition. It is not an explicit and pur purpose purposeful quest for critical literacy, at least not for the mass of students in the educational systems, as has been amply demonstrated by recent statements by the Secretary of Education and former uh, National Education Chief William J. Bennett, the main concern of the mainstream literacy crusade is the short-term extrinsic payoff for both the individual and the society, not the intrinsic long-term pleasure to be found in educational excellence. Now, this the, the quote's going to continue because it's a, it's a pretty long quote, but notice some of the key terms already. Uh, first sentence, functional literacy and to a degree cognitive literacy within the bourgeoisie tradition. Any of you who've read his, studied history for all of about five seconds know that the terms bourgeoisie, proletariat, those are the buzzwords for Karl Marx. She's writing from an inherently uh, communist perspective and yet is blanketly applying it to what America was dealing with in its educational system at the time. And no one barked, no one kicked, no one squealed. Everyone was just like, oh yeah, yeah you're exactly right. And notice the identifiers, the adjectives to describe literacy. You have she identifies three right off the bat, functional literacy, cognitive literacy, and then critical literacy. Now, last one, we've heard that last adjective a lot these days, haven't we? Right? Critical theory, right? For, so, so again, if you study uh, history on that as well, and you go back to the days of the Frankfurt School uh, and what it produced about essentially cultural Marxism, the, the utilizing the various demographics and states of individuals to mobilize them and give them a national or a corporate will, um, all based off of their differences, right? And yet telling them to think the same. Th this, is, this is all the same stream, folks. Different fish, same stream. 
Uh, and, and notice what she's going to go on to say about the difference between critical, quote unquote, literacy compared to functional literacy, cognitive literacy. Functional and cognitive literacy uh, would apply to being able to maintain a language, speak that language, read that language, uh, and engage with other people in that language. So that's the cognitive aspect. But notice what she goes on to say about, quote, quote unquote, critical literacy. Again, this is in 1986. This is not, you know, 2022 or 23. Quote, the literacy crusade currently being mounted by the educational establishment is fundamentally anti-radical and anti-democratic and authentic and consequently radical concern for literacy starts with the assumption from Stanley Aronowitz words that, quote, critical thinking is the fundamental precondition of an autonomous and self-motivated citizenry. This means in turn, appropriating the bourgeoisie tradition of liberal learning in order to ultimately transform it in the interest of intellectual and social and social empowerment. Critical literacy, in short, is the essence of the radical democratic agenda. Now, I want to clear this up because there's going to be a lot of terms there that sound confusing. Anti-radical and anti-democratic, uh, she puts those together. But we live in a democracy, right? Oh my goodness, how much I hate hearing this today. All the time, all the time in the media, left and right. So so conservatives are just as bad about this as liberals. We, if you, if you haven't heard this before, brace yourself. We do not, in America live in a democracy. We don't. We live in a republic. More specifically, a federal republic. More specifically, a covenantal republic, because the word federal is Latin for covenant. Fetus means covenant. We live in a covenantal republic in which <laughs> this is not a mob rule by the people. That would be democracy. And anytime you've also studied communism, you'll come to find that they borrow the language of quote-unquote democracy because, again, they are trying to mobilize the masses, the proletariat, to have a centralized will and a desire to take that will and enforce it in a corporate entity, a centralized entity, the state, right? And so when she's talking about how the functional and, and cognitive literacy people, i.e. normal, everyday Americans who believe in our republic, uh, She's saying that they're inherently anti-radical and anti-democratic. You're absolutely right. We don't believe in radical and revolutionary means uh, towards political ends. And we don't believe in mass mob rule, uh, quote unquote, under the, the guise of democracy. This is something that our founders were also very wary of. And when you go and read the founders and the signers of the Constitution, for example, it's very eye-opening. Because again, we just throw around the term democracy today like it's uh, salt on good food, right? Or other seasonings. Like we just throw it out like it doesn't really mean anything and just make something sound more patriotic. Um, but the founders were very wary of uh, like strict democracy. It's why they constructed a republic. And Benjamin Rush, for example, one of the signers uh, would go on to say that democracy was the devil's own government. The demos, the people, cr uh, cr cr democracy, right? Uh, the, the, the end of the word there meaning uh, order of, so order of the people, order by the people. Again, that democracy is great for everyone until 90% of the people uh, are calling for the, you know, the slaughter of Jews or other atrocities, right? That's what happens when you have strict democracy or more importantly, the illusion of strict democracy. Anyway, didn't mean to go on a rant there. Last thing, the last thing that I would want to identify from this section before continuing the quote um, notice what she says, quote, critical thinking is the fundamental precondition of an autonomous and self-motivated citizenry. This is crucial, particularly for us as Christians, whether we're talking about education or anything else uh, in the spheres of our lives, and most importantly, with respect to biblical obedience. Man's temptation since the garden has always been uh, towards autonomy, that we would be autonomous. The, the two fundamental questions, temptations that we always fall for is, has God really said, and you will be like God. Those are the two temptations, the two things we've always fallen for. And both of those produce what? Has God really said? This is a question of his authority. You will be like God. This is uh, more than a question of his authority. It's a usurpation of his authority. In other words, man in his sinful nature has always desired to be autonomous from God, from our creator, sustainer. Um, and redeemer, right? So this is what the humanistic or the communistic 
worldview will always produce is the the promise or the appeal or the lure to the masses of we can be autonomous. I promise we can be autonomous. We just have to will it. Uh, but we will find time and time and time again that our sovereign God will not allow that to happen. And praise be to his name, stupidity has an expiration date. These things have never worked. Uh, that's why it's so funny for somebody to be advocating for socialistic and communistic practices today uh, because such resulted in the deaths of millions of people in the 20th century. But anyway, continuing on, next stanza. Radical educators need to recognize the shortcomings of liberal and conservative approaches to educational reform, take care to avoid co-option, uh, co distinguish short-term and long-term agendas, and be eternally vigilant, wow, it's a strong word, eternally vigilant in defending and extending the liberal arts and sciences curriculum. They need, above all, to remember the broad tradition of bourgeoisie culture and liberal learning that has often yielded, unintentionally or otherwise, a radical payoff, namely the liberation of critical thought and democratic action. Now, this is in incredibly interesting because if we tie it back to the last sentence from the second paragraph, she said this, remember, uh, that, that basically it says it's in the interest of the intellectual and social empowerment um, to transform, where was it? transform basically the traditional narrative. In other words, if we're going to boil, because I know that that was a super long quote, basically what she's getting at is like, look, if the radical, quote unquote, democratic agenda, the communistic agenda, the humanistic agenda is going to succeed, they're going to have to intentionally and covertly undermine the foundations of what was known in America as really Christian education or Christian influenced education. They're going to have to undermine it. They're going to have to covertly hide under it um, so that they can free these people from their own thoughts is basically what she's saying. Because what you'll notice with these people, whether it was uh, John Dewey, Horace Mann, um, the Owen family, or these these more more modern contemporaries, they're always against the the responsibility of the individual, the free thinking of the individual. And so what she's saying here is they're going to hijack what she said here in this last sentence, a radical payoff namely the liberation of critical thought and democratic action, is they're going to use the foundations of what was traditional Christian education. Uh, they're going to undermine it. They're going to hijack it so that they can convince individuals, they're going to convince students and uh, ultimately the masses that they themselves are choosing with their freedom, their perceived freedom, to adopt this lifestyle and worldview. That's really, I mean, you can get the book yourself, folks, and read it. You can find this article. I bet that that scholarship is still out there as well. Again, that's Boston University's Journal of Education, Volume 168, Number 1 from 1986. And you can see, I bet that, I mean, obviously this is only a snippet. I bet the rest of the essay is probably even more wild. But here was their agenda in 1986 that they wanted to hijack what was at that point understood to be foundations of edu education towards political ends. If you don't believe me, Hang on to this next quote. So this, this next quote that uh, Blumenfield identifies is from James Paul G. He is uh, actually commenting on another book that was arguing for essentially the same agenda of quote-unquote critical literacy uh, because we still need to unpack what that means, right? So he says this. He says, we need above all else to do away with the idea of literacy as training for domestication, contrive to fill existent or imagined lower level slots and consumer roles, and search instead for in instruments of moral leverage strong enough to scrutinize those roles and to examine the political determinants of subjugation, examine, study, stand back, and reflect upon their purpose, and by virtue of reflection examination, first to denounce and finally transform, again, this idea of transforming what was commonly understood as education back in the day, in the 80s, that is. Literacy so conceived is civil disobedience and pedagogic close, a cognitive denunciation of dynastic power, an ethical affront to an imperial injustice. Critical and analytical competence on such a scale is more than quote-unquote functional, it is a literacy for human liberation. It is cultural action, an event, not an idea. It is political. It is endowed with anger. It is not neutral. All right. So before we break that down any further, I just want to tip my hat, as I've done on several other occasions, to Dr. Ben Merkel of 
New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho, he's famously said, and I want to make it more famous because this is such a true quote. As a Christian, he said this, you don't have to be a paid Baptist or a post mill, but the left is, and that's why they're winning. Basically, what he's saying tongue-in-cheek is you don't have to believe uh, that that children possess uh, spiritual and mental capabilities beyond what we, un- we underestimate them to have. Um, you don't have to believe that, but guess what the left does, and that's why they're going after them. And you might, you know, believe in your your uh, yuppie rapture and uh, defeatist Christianity of we just need to hold out a little longer, stay in our holy huddle, and let the world go to hell uh, because it's all going to disappear right before us any time now. So we don't need to think long term. But guess what? The left doesn't think that way. They prioritize the hearts and minds of kids, and they prioritize the long run. And that's why, from whether it's from the tail end of the 18th century, uh, the developments of education through the 19th, or even these folks in the 80s, you could see that for a long, 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 long time now, they were plotting and scheming for what? For what we're seeing today, as many people have identified the public, all these outrages, all these, you know, parents who see outraged at uh, school board meetings today over what's being taught in classes or put in libraries. Congratulations, the education, the the public state government uh, school system is doing exactly what it was designed to do. And that is to separate your children from you and to teach them the doctrines of the state as as these I want to remind you, these are education professionals. Um, and again, this so uh, James Paul G in this quote that I just read that was this that was from the same Journal of Education from Boston University same year. Again, hear this again. Critical and analytical competence on such a scale for critical literacy is more than functional. It is a literacy for human liberation. This stems from the foundations that were taught by Horace Mann early, early on to get the state or government school system going, in which he said salvation is through education. And this is interesting because, again, uh, you know, uh, demons don't die easily. So goes the saying. And there's nothing new under the sun. So when you study pagan worldviews going all the way back to the old Greek Stoics uh, and Eclectics, you will find that uh, in disagreements between Aristotle and Socrates, for example, both dealing with the condition of man, they both resolved to uh, answers that are antithetical to scripture. One said, hey, man is the way he is because of his circumstance. So we need to elevate uh, or advance his circumstance and then man will be you know, enlightened or he will be blessed. The other said, no, 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 salvation or deliverance or elevation, development, progress is through education. If man, man is ignorant, if he was just educated, it would all be fine. This is all defeated by scripture, uh, and it's all defeated by a terrific quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said this, he said that the tragic fallacy of the last hundred years is to believe that man is the way he is because of a product of circumstance or ignorance, lest we forget that it was in paradise that he fell. Uh, We are the way we are because we're sinners, folks. We can hide that all the day long, but it's true. And if we don't have that assumption and and, and, and uh, starting uh, systems like that of education or government or you name it, we will always find that man is not cooperating. And so then our response is more and more power. It, we just need to beat it out of them, right? And this is what totalitarian or authoritarian regimes have done, even through education, uh, not acknowledging the fact that only God can remove the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. The state cannot. Education cannot. Uh, welfare cannot. But again, we will try and we will try because we will do anything but repent. And that's why so many, for example, of the uh, fathers of modern education were either Unitarians or just out and about atheists uh, because their assumption about the nature of man is that man is a decent or a good creature uh, from day one. Whereas Christians, it's an orthodox doctrine that no, we possess both original and actual sin that needs dealing with, it needs redemption. So anyway... A lot of different rabbit holes there, but I hope you're getting the idea so far that these particular, I've only cited two so far, so I mean, just, you know, trying to be fair, but these were prominent scholars who were featured 
in their work to demonstrate that no, 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 education most certainly has an agenda. Let's focus on those last couple of phrases there. He said this again, it is literacy for human liberation. It is cultural action, an event, not an idea. It is political. It is endowed with anger. It is not neutral. So back to Ben Merkel's quote of, uh, you don't have to be paid a Baptist or post mill, but the left is, and that's why they're winning. Another reason why the left is winning right now, as they've been scheming and plotting for several generations now, is because they know that education is discipleship. It is only one, but it might be among the largest uh, aspects of many aspects, but one of the largest, if not the largest, that does direct man upon the paths in which he will walk and how he will walk down them. It is inherently discipleship. Christians have ignored this or they have denied it for generations. And especially now, as again, you have more angry parents at school board meetings who are like, let's just go back to when education was neutral, when, you know, numbers were just numbers and history was just, no, (laughs) no, my friends, like that is not the nature of knowledge. And it is certainly not the nature in which knowledge will be delivered. It will always be biased in one way or the other. Uh, It will always have an agenda because everything has a telos. It has an end state, a desired end state. And the question is, does that come from God? And is it instructed by him or from a false God? Very, very simple. Because again, even today, and it's so funny because I've seen so many Christians, particularly lately, uh, whether it's with from our posts or others of the same variety, they're like, well, you don't, you know, there's not an inherently religious way to teach something like math. Like that's something you hear all the time. And that's funny because that idea you're actually, you're taking the bait from the secularists. They wanted, that's why there's been such a huge emphasis on STEM. Don't buy into the lie that it's in pursuit of more technological innovation. No, it's because they want to, again, pull the wool over your eyes that knowledge is neutral or that education's neutral. But again, it's, it's funny that Christians say that because the leftists who they learned that from are saying in places like Seattle or other places in the Northwest that some numbers are racist or the way that math is taught is racist or it has some other ideological or political um, agenda behind it. And therefore we need to change to another agenda. And so the more we fight this, the more that we'll be, you know, dogs chasing our own tails, uh, the more we will be posturing ourselves for more and more slaughter uh, denying the fact that knowledge is not neutral uh, because then that would mean that the truth is neutral and the truth can't be neutral because then it wouldn't be truth. There is truth and there is falsehood. There is right and there is wrong. There is good and there is evil. There is no neutrality. That's not what Christ taught. That is not what the scriptures teach. And the the, the leftists, the liberals, they uh, the pagans, the neo-pagans, they identify that. And Christians have always been in strong denial. Uh, so Blumenfield goes on. So I hope that those those two passages so far have been pretty uh, eye-opening. I will finish on one more that comes from Beverly M. Gordon, an, a professor of education at Ohio State, writing an art, another article, but for a different journal of education, I believe. Actually, it might be the same one. But at any rate, it's from another journal of education, uh, also from the summer of 1986, uh, Beverly was heavily inspired by the Brazilian Marxist, uh, po- uh, definitely, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to pronounce that name, but who was uh, a prof- like a very, very popular Marxist author in the 70s, wrote a famous book titled The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Um, and at any rate, Gordon goes on to say this. The, I, I, the reason why, because some of you guys like, are probably thinking I don't really care who these people are, but again, I'm trying to demonstrate the fact that a lot of what we're fighting, like, blood, sweat, and tears right now uh, was advocated, you know, 30 plus years ago. And, and so we need to, we need to remember that it, again, like not only did all the public school or government state school foundations begin on secular anti-Christian foundations, um, but they continued that way for generations and generations and generations. And Christians, I think, just didn't want to see it because it was clearly right there. Again, these are in scholarly writings. These are not hidden away in manifestos. Anyway, here's what Gordon goes on to say. One of the best known advocates of emancipatory pedagogy is, uh, this is the Brazilian Paulo, Paulo, uh, yeah, Paulo Freire. 
So sorry, guys. I told you I wasn't going to be able to pronounce it. His writings describe the development of educational pedagogies designed to promote critical consciousness. Critical consciousness. To enable students to become critical thinkers and active societal participants and to give people the emancipatory capability of redefining the, the nature of their own lives. His advocacy of, educa of education for critical consciousness and his model of emancipatory pedagogy for oppressed groups together heighten our awareness of the inherently and inescapably political nature of curriculum. In the emancipatory classroom, students begin to participate as an active citizenry and to overcome their feelings of despair and hopelessness, apathy and alienation. Educating someone is an awesome responsibility and unavoidably political act. It's just so frustrating reading that because it's like, here's someone, here are people who hate God, they hate scripture, but they're right, they're right as they can be on this point, on those points. They're just using these, these truths against uh, the truth giver. They're using it. They're, they're stealing from God. They're borrowing from God just to blaspheme him. But these are inescapable truths. That's why uh, God gave, gave us his revealed word as a spoken and written word, <laughs> that we would ponder it, that we would meditate it both night and day, Psalm 1, right? Because it is, it is knowledge. It is truth. It is relational. Uh, it's intellectual, emotional, spiritual all-encompassing. It's the totality of action that we believe, that we speak, that we act in every single day. And it's just a shame that, again, these, these uh, advocates, these participants in the modern public school uh, academic world, that they, again, they were using these things against Christians, uh, all under titles, again, like, notice, again, the, the terms that have been repeated over and over and over again, right? So, quote-unquote, critical consciousness and, quote-unquote, emancipatory pedagogy. If you haven't studied a lot about critical theory or cultural Marxism, I highly recommend uh, Fault Lines by uh, Pastor Vody Bauckham. Uh, or just studying, I mean, you could study these historical uh, events on your own. But the whole idea is essentially to, to identify power structures, quote-unquote, uh, and acknowledge the fact that there's always you know, some oppressed group that deserves uh, the complete overthrow, a dismantlement of the regime. But then it's a constant you know, cycle, right? Because then, all right, that happens, then who, guess who's the regime? Well, the formerly oppressed, which means now there's new oppressed, which means they need to overthrow the regime. And as a... Uh, uh, the professor by the name of G I had identified before of that means that the nature of education of what you are believing and receiving in the world around you, it's inherently angry. I thought that was really interesting how he said that. How he said that education has to be inherently angry or as Beverly was just saying uh, that the student needs to basically feel like they're overcoming feelings of despair, hopelessness, apathy, and alienation. Now, this is really interesting in our modern context uh, particularly as we have a double-handed approach, a, a paradoxical approach, right? So in the American education system today, one of the least um, valued subjects, for example, is history. And so we value it very little. Uh, most high schoolers have to take maybe one or two history credits in their four years at all. It's valued very little. They want you to think. That's the perception. And yet, in those few courses, what are you being taught? Basically, a generation or two or three now has been taught to hate their country's history. Now, this is where well-intended Christians jump in and say, well, we can be critical about our history. We can acknowledge the sins we committed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's a wise thing to do. But there's a clear... Uh, difference. And if you don't believe me, take a, a look at our culture around us. When you teach generations over and over and over again, that everything about uh, the nation in which they live, the culture in which they live, is an abomination to the human spirit. Um, yeah, that's going to bear fruit. <laughs> and it might not be fruit that you like. Uh, and so it's funny because they basically say, hey, look over here, Look at this thing that doesn't matter. But also, here's the truth about this thing that doesn't matter. And you better believe it because it doesn't really matter 
but it also defines everything that you come to know about the world you're living in. And that's what they've done with history. That's what they've done with economics um, and, and civics as well. So I, I say all that because, again, like if, if you want to create, quote unquote, emancipation um, education, if you want to tell students that basically there's all these intangible things which they must overcome with their received knowledge as a collective group, right, to be to free themselves from such oppression, you have to be very methodical in how you're going to do that um, and very intentional about how you're going to do that. And such has happened uh, from the 80s to now and even before then. But I hope you're seeing the point that, again, these were all discussions happening more than 30 years ago about what the nature of education was, what the intention of education was, and what the desired end of education was from education professionals, from the creme de la creme, if you will, uh, of thinkers at that point in time. And you can disagree about what they said. I hope you disagree with what they said. I hope that the, you know these quotes are like, goodness gracious, that does, yeah, that actually is horrible, and I don't agree with that. I hope that right now, if you're someone who is a public school advocate, you're going, well, I have all kinds of objections to that. I hope you have objections. But what you cannot object to is that these folks, their ideas, those roots have, in fact, bore fruit. Again, we can have well-intended folks, we can have well-intended Christians who want to use this system toward its good. But you're outnumbered, kids. Sorry. Like, and the system itself is reared against you. And more importantly than all of this, aside from all, because at the end of the day, I, I clearly wanted to uh, pull back the curtain on, you know, uh, these ideas in their time, right? And how those affect us today. But those are all secondary tertiary issues. When it comes down to the real issue, it is what has God commanded about education? And what he's commanded is that families are primarily responsible, not the state, not any other entity, not, not even the church. Families are predominantly and overwhelmingly exhausted in scripture to be those who possess uh, the rights to education and how it's stewarded and how it's maintained. Um, that, and, and, and so then the question is, is do we obey that or do we not? That's, that, that's, that's where we have to start in all of this. Uh, and then we can get to our failings and the, the, the considerations of ideology and so forth. But uh, that's a point I want to stress. And we're going on 40 minutes now. I wanted to, that was to, to the negative, basically. That was to the thrashing of uh, some of the horrible things that we have seen or that have developed in public education through time. I want to now uh, look at the issue through a more positive lens, although it's going to be, you know, critical. And of course, it's, it's a scholarly, this is a scholarly journal, so it's going to consider these things intelligently. Um, but I also, you know, don't want to keep you guys on here for too, too long. So I might only read half of this longer section. But this is, this actually might deserve its own episode. I'll probably do a part two of this one. That's what I'll do. Anyway, so continuing on, this is, so again, uh, if you're, for whatever reason, if you skipped ahead or if you're uh, just now landing in here, we're still going through the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, Volume 11, Number 2, from 1986-87, Symposium on the Education of the Core Group. This next article, which I will say is without a doubt worth reading in its entirety, I think it's the best, um, it's most concise and yet not too brochure-like, of the consider, it's the best, um, initial introduction into uh, Christian education, I, I think, that I've seen so far. So without further ado, here we get into it. This is from John M. Otis. Education is one of the most vital issues facing America today, especially the Christian community. Again, this is in 1986. The crucial question is not whether our children are being educated, but how they are being educated. Whether we like it or not, our educational system operates from a distinctive philosophical perspective. There is a philosophy of life being fed to our children. As Christian parents, do we know what that philosophy is? We should if we are responsible parents. We often fail as parents in caring for our children in the fullest sense. We would not think twice about providing adequate medical care for our children and babysitting if we leave our children. But how concerned are we about their total spiritual welfare? Our children 
spend an average of 30 hours each week in school. They are being taught, most assuredly, a world and life view. Sadly, most Christian parents have never taken the time to sufficiently examine the philosophy and methodology of the education being taught to their children. It is paramount that we take the time. The purpose of this study is to help the Christian parent realize his biblical responsibility for his child's education, to comprehend the kind of education his child is likely receiving, and to understand what is Christian education, to imagine the tremendous implications a genuine Christian education can have on a generation and a future culture, and to challenge that parent uh, that a Christian school is not just a viable alternative, but it is an absolute necessity. Section two, parental obligations. To whom belongs the primary responsibility for the education of, the, of children? Does it belong to the government? Does it belong to the school? The biblical answer to these questions is none of the above. The Bible says the primary responsibility for a child's education belongs to the parents. We cannot begin to grasp the necessity for the Christian school without first understanding our roles as Christian parents. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 states the parents' responsibilities. Parents are to teach their children to love God with all their heart. This teaching is to be done everywhere and at any time. Every situation in life is an opportunity for godly parents to instruct children in how to walk in the paths of righteousness. There wasn't there was to be an undeviating obedience to God's law, regardless of where one might be. God's law is to be constantly before us, before our eyes, and on our hands, and upon the doorposts of our homes. This is all going back to Deuteronomy 6, by the way. This passage states so magnific magnific magnificently a biblical world and life view. The primary responsibility for education fell upon the father, who is the covenant head of the family. The Proverbs emphasize this fact along with Ephesians 6.4. In Ephesians 6.4, the Greek is very emph emphatic. Fathers are told to, quote, nurture their children to the, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The verb that can be translated nurture has an imperative meaning, meaning it is a command. And the present tense of the verb definitely implies a constant ongoing activity. Fathers are to be unceasing in nurturing their children. This is to be done through the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The discipline carries with it the idea of chastening that leads to correction, Hebrews 12.11. The instruction or admonition leading to, a, leading to godliness carries the idea of training by means of spoken word, whether it be teaching, warning, or encouragement. Hence, the father is engaged in a comprehensive Christian training of his children. This would include a training whereby the father teaches by the example of his life. Even though parents are primarily responsible for their children's education, they must never forget that the child is ultimately not the parent's property, but God's property. Children are gifts to parents, Psalm 127.3. They are given for a time to bless us, but one day they must leave and begin their own families. As in all things given to us by God, the principles of stewardship is applicable. We are accountable to God for the type of training we give to the children he has blessed us with. It behooves all Christian parents to examine the training of their children. Section 3, Parental Authority and Christian Schooling. It is interesting to note that the fundamental institution in society is that of the family. In Scripture, we see such institutions as the family, the church, and, and government. But nowhere do we see the quote-unquote school as an institution. This is highly significant. The scripture never gives any God-given authority to the school. There is no direct command to start a school, to attend one, nor to obey the authority of a school teacher. Biblically speaking, a school derives its only existence and authority from the parents. The school's authority is thereby a derivative one. The only reason a godly parent should secure the services of a Christian school is because he is lacking in the knowledge, skill, and time that a professional Christian teacher can provide. When Christian parents send their children to a Christian school, they are delegating full authority to that school for the education of that child during the school hours. The Christian teacher stands in loco parentis, quote, in place of the parent, with respect to the child. 
The school assumes the godly role of the parent during those school hours. The school is engaged in the disciplining process in the fullest sense. It is engaged in character building. The teacher is the backbone of the school. The biblical model of discipleship is that the pupil becomes like the teacher, Luke 6.40. The selection of teachers, therefore, becomes a vital process for the Christian school. Their beliefs, personalities, knowledge, skills, and lifestyles will affect the children they teach. The Christian school, properly seen, is an extension of the Christian home. The school exists for no other purpose than to supplement and not replace a parent's instruction at home. The school and home work closely together in educating the child. Section 4. A Conflict of Worldviews If we are responsible Christian parents, we will diligently determine the kind of philosophy being fed to our children. It may, may be too surprised that many, <laughs> excuse me, it may be a surprise to many that a conflict does exist. The conflict is between Christianity's philosophy and the world's philosophy. The word world often carries a negative connotation in scripture. It refers to a godless evil system, which is antithetical to God's law. The conflict is not only possible, but inevitable. 2 Timothy 3.12, John 15.18-20, 17.14, 1 John 3.13, 1 Peter 4.12. The conflict is basically one of contrasting worldviews. What do we mean by quote-unquote worldviews? A worldview, simply put, is one's philosophy of life. This philosophy involves the basis of one's entire thinking. Our moral values are undergirded by a worldview. No human being thinks or behaves in a neutral fashion. We think and the way we act stem from our governing philosophy of life, which is our world and life view. Actually, one's worldview is a person's religion. It is wholly incorrect to speak of one person being religious and another not. All thinking and behavior is religious by its very nature. The question is always which religion is, is one espousing, not whether they are espousing one. There is no neutrality in thought. One thinks and acts according to his religious beliefs. Even the atheist is religion. His religion is that he believes there is no God. Of course, in saying that, he becomes his own God. He is the final interpreter of truth of what is real or not. Section 5. What is a Christian worldview? Proverbs 1, 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. A Christian worldview presupposes the truthfulness of God's word. It begins with the inerrancy of scripture. The Bible is truth. It is God's word given to us on who God is, what the world is really like, and how we are to live in relationship to our creator and with one another. A Christian worldview believes in a universe that is the handiwork of a personal God who made it and who constantly governs it. The doctrine of creation undergirds a Christian worldview. A Christian worldview believes man was created to fellowship with God and was created perfect, but because of his disobedience, sin came into the world. This sin affected the whole human race, to the point that we are said to be children of wrath, Ephesians 2, verse 1 and following. Sin has affected every part of our being, especially our thinking. This means we cannot think properly apart from God, who is the final authority. Unless a man first presupposes God, he cannot know reality accurately, seeing that God is the creator. The facts of the universe are what God has made them and they cannot be interpreted without reference to him if they are to be truly known. Hence, a Christian worldview is rooted in an accurate knowledge of man's nature. A Christian worldview sees man's hope of deliverance from this sinful nature with its eternal consequences as only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is seen as preeminent. He is Lord over all. Colossians 1.17 no knowledge can be accurately perceived in its fullest sense apart from how it relates to Jesus Christ. The Christian worldview is rooted in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. In summary, the Christian worldview says that man cannot accurately know the physical universe apart from the interpretation God gives to its facts. That man cannot accurately know himself, that is, why he thinks and behaves the way he does apart from what the Bible says about him. In short, man cannot truly know anything apart from his creator. Section 6. 
what is a humanist worldview. The philosophy that characterizes the system referred to in the Bible as, quote, the world, is, presented, is presently termed humanism. Humanism is a man-centered philosophy which seeks to interpret the universe independently of any reference to the triune God of the Bible. Humanism's four great pillars are one, atheism, two, evolution, three, autonomous ethics, and four, worldwide socialism. Humanism's beliefs are clearly delineated in the Humanist Manifestos 1 and 2. These works were formulated by self-proclaimed humanists. These documents sought to codify the distinctives of what these people believed. One could call these works, quote, the Bible of humanism. The first pillar is that of atheism. Secular humanism says that there is no personal God such as the God of the Bible. In Humanist Manifesto number 2, this is said, quote, we find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of a supernatural. As non-theists, we begin with humans, not God, nature, not deity. We can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. Humans are responsible for what we are and what we will become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. Now, I got to take a comment on that. How just how crazy. Oh my goodness. Anyway, the second pillar is organic evolution. Since humanists reject a belief in God, they must explain the origin of the universe independently of God. This theory postulates that the universe has come into existence by pure chance. Man is not the product of a personal God, but he is the accidental product of millions of years of gradual change from the lower forms of life. In Manifesto number 1, it is stated, quote, Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Humanism believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as the result of continuous process. Sir Julian Huxley, one of the founders of the American Humanist Association, defined humanism, quote, I use the word humanist to mean someone who believes that man is just as much a natural phenomenon as an animal or plant, that his body, mind, and soul were not supernaturally created but are products of evolution, and that he is not under the control or guidance of any supernatural being or beings, but has to rely on himself and his own powers. The third pillar of humanism is autonomous ethics. Going back to uh, Barbara Scott's writing earlier, um, that basically, quote-unquote, critical education was to make man more autonomous. And we talked about how the garden, the temptation in the garden was to be autonomous from God. Notice how this is a pillar of humanism. The third pillar of humanism is autonomous ethics. Some years ago, the Humanist magazine said, quote, Darwin's discovery of the principle of evolution sounded the death knell of religious and moral values. It removed the ground from under the feet of traditional religion. The Humanist, the humanist Manifesto number two states, ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. Ethics stems from human needs and interests. To deny this distorts the whole basis of life. The humanist sees man as innately good and quite sufficient to solve his problems from any supreme God. Humanist Manifesto number two goes on to say, too often traditional faiths encourage dependence rather than courage. We believe in maximum individual autonomy consonant with social responsibility. Man is the measure of all things for the humanist. The fourth pillar is worldwide socialism. The humanist dislikes free enterprise economics. Humanist Manifesto once said, quote, The humanists are firmly convinced that existing acquisitive and profit-motivated society has shown itself to be inadequate, that a radical change in methods, controls, and motives must be instituted. A socialized and cooperative economic order must be established to the end that the equitable distribution of the means of life is possible. Humanist Manifesto number two advocates a one-world government. It says, quote, We deplore the divisions of humankind on nationalistic grounds. We have reached a turning point in history where the best option is to transcend the limits of national sovereignty and move toward the building of a world community in which all sectors of the human family can participate. I'll take a breath for a second. Gracious, because I just read for uh, close to 20 minutes straight, maybe. Uh, I really want to keep going, but uh, I know that I've, I've had you guys on here for a while. All of that was the framing. 
you take a step back for a second, take a take a deep breath. Of education is 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 about so much more than how are we memorizing the ABCs, how are we teaching these kids how to write, and we know this, we know this by experience, but more importantly, we know this from Scripture. Far more is expected of the individual and in how they are going to know God, relate to Him, and serve Him in joy and obedience. Far more is expected of the individual of how they are to know their neighbor and love their neighbor as themselves and. By what, by what standard will they do so? We know that there's more to education. For whatever reason, the church has denied so. But hopefully by pondering these things again, uh, as God is quite literally forcing us to right now, uh, we can begin to reconstruct, to put our best foot forward by the power of the Spirit uh, and see these institutions redeemed and reordered to their biblical structures. As for what was just read, um, all of those details on the humanistic worldview have been so eye-opening. Um, I will tell you in my personal sanctification, I was first exposed to words from the Humanist Manifesto in reading Francis Schaeffer's uh, Christian Manifesto. I'd highly recommend that. Uh, it was essentially a, <laughs> a play on those two humanistic manifestos, and he's, he's, he's just destroying humanism and calling for other Christians to do it. Um, but we live in a world today, as, as my friend has called it, one nation under Gog, um, a, a, a world of secular humanism. We live in a pantheon of secular humanism where there's so many uh, lower gods that all live in this pantheon that, we, that people serve on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's their sexuality, that's its own little deity, whether it's their racial or ethnic demographic, that's a little deity, um, whether it's their occupational uh, ambitions or money in general or you name it, we have all these little gods that we all serve towards what end? Towards the end that man is the end of all things. That's the call of humanism. That uh, there is no God. There is no right and wrong. I'm going to do what I want and die tomorrow. That's, that is the thrust. That's, those are the products of secular humanism. Atheistic, hedonistic, nihilism. And so then when you study these things and you start seeing them abound in our world today and you realize that, again, these didn't fall out of the sky, these didn't just fall on our laps, that they were intentionally engineered by folks who, I don't know, wrote these manifestos, who also uh, advocated or wrote themselves a legislation which, which, which now we enforce by law uh, and by coercion whether it be compulsory education or a whole litany of things, when you, when you see that all these things connect, you're like, good gracious, yeah, we need a lot of repentance, don't we? And more than that, more than just uh, inherently and exclusively spiritual repentance, we need tangible repentance in which we build back that which God intended. So I'll pause there on that particular essay. And my prayer for this episode has been that... Uh, one, that you've, you've been informed. I mean, I hope that, uh, that this has been coherent to some degree. I know it's been longer. I know it's not usually a subject which folks dive in, you know, headfirst into because it's super entertaining. Um, so I appreciate your time, and I hope that, one, this has been informative. Two, I hope that it has been uh, entertaining to a degree. You know, obviously not like uh, something you'd write home about, but it entertaining in, in the sense that it, you are um, delighted to be hearing things that maybe you haven't heard for the first time. Uh, but number three, I hope that uh, most importantly, this has challenged uh, how we might think about obedience to the Lord in this arena of life, education, and, and how we consider it. Because this isn't just about us, and this isn't even just about our children directly. This is about our children and their children's children. Uh, we as Christians have to think covenantally. We have to think downstream. Again, the left is already doing it. Right. And so if we're not thinking about in what ways are we going to be discipling or affecting the discipleship of our great, great grandchildren, we're wrong um, because because we are even choosing not to do so. You've already given uh, you've already made a decision. If we don't think about education, if we don't think about the structures of society and institutions, which God has uh, prioritized and given us commands to, if we don't consider those things and walk in obedience in those paths, uh, the enemy will. 
and the enemy will direct their steps. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but I, I pray that our children's children and so on and so forth live in better societies than we do, live in more biblical societies that, than, that, than we do. Um, and if nothing else, because again, I know that um, there will be skeptics who listen to this, uh, what, what I can forecast about the next part is where um, Otis goes with this, this particular article. He's going to start walking through the history of education in America in general, public, private, you name it, homeschool, you name it. I hope it's going to show you that even if you disagree with some of the conclusions that I've made or this, these authors have made about the nature of education from Scripture, I hope you see in the next episode that even today's present practices in education are in contradiction with to, contradiction um, with that which we practiced in this country for hundreds of years. Um, and that alone should raise concern. Because then if we could see that in education, we will most certainly see it in politics, how uh, our regime today, again, or you know, either side, conservative, liberal, uh, Republican or Democrat, we are all living in massive contradiction to um, the original foundations of our governance. So, and walking a step further, if we could see those things in education, if we could see those things in government, that we can also see them in the church, that the American church uh, is in high contrast and high contradiction to uh, the church proper as she has been sanctified by the spirit for hundreds of years. And in all this, in all these arenas of life, that we would be called to repentance because Christ is king and that really means something. Um, so until next time, again, I, I thank you guys. Please reach out to us with your questions, comments, and concerns via the blog, our DMs, emails. There's a million and one ways to get out there. Just uh, you know, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, remember, whatever you do, that which is done in faith, faith in Jesus Christ, is not wasted. Sin is dead, death is next, and Ave, Christus Rex. The Calcedon Foundation is a Christian education organization devoted to the research, publishing, and promotion of Christian reconstruction. We believe that the Christian faith is applicable to every area of life and thought, and that all things are to be, quote, reconstructed according to God's revealed will and scripture. Founded in 1965 by R.J. Rush Jr., the Chalcedon Foundation, a nonprofit named after the Great Ecclesiastical Council of Chalcedon, A.D. 451, which defined Jesus Christ as both truly God and truly man, recognizes this crucial definition as the mystery of Christ's incarnation as the limiting factor to all human authorities and institutions. In Matthew 28:18, the resurrected Christ declared, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth, which means no person or human institution can claim ultimate authority in history. With recognizing Christ as Lord in history, the Chalcedon Foundation teaches that the first and most basic government is self-government, but it is self-government in terms of God's revealed will, which is contained in his written laws within both the Old and New Testaments. Salvation is more than delivering a sinner from eternal punishment. It is a restoration to obedience as Christians who will live out that obedience in the law of God written upon their hearts and minds. Since Christ is Lord of history and his kingdom is expressed through his people, then the Lordship of Christ extends to every area of life and thought. Our mission, therefore, as the body of Christ in history, is to advance the crown rights of King Jesus in every realm. Check out the Chalcedon Foundation at www.chalcedonfoundation.edu.